Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Pakira Maimer, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. You're listening to the first episode of a six-part series where we look at the art and science of talking and writing about science. Science and knowing how to communicate it to a non-specialized audience has become more important than ever. In a world currently facing an unparalleled health crisis, Questions that were typically asked only in the realms of medicine, clinical research, virology, or immunology is all anyone wants to talk about these days. And journalism, storytelling, and science are more conflated than ever. Science and journalism are similar in that they are both a search for some kind of a truth. Um, They're similar in that they're driven by curiosity and sometimes by the desire to right some wrong. I felt like we have a gap that, need, that needs to be filled. Um, there, there are a lot of scientists everywhere, successful, doing great, but they don't have this interest in communication. These are the voices of some of the researchers that you'll hear from throughout the series. Before the coronavirus pandemic revealed the thirst for clear, accurate science and put a spotlight on the craft, science communication had already become an important part of being a researcher. Funders increasingly require it, the public welcomes it, and there are countless models and examples out there to learn from. We're also seeing more scientists switching lanes and becoming full-time science writers or journalists. But the truth is, communicating complex ideas in a clear, concise manner doesn't come naturally to everyone. And if there is one thing that science communicators and journalists who've been doing it for years can agree on, is that the learning curve can be steep. There are a lot of skills that go into it such as writing, reporting, podcasting, public speaking, marketing, or storytelling, sometimes all of that. In the opening episode of the series, we set the scene by defining what science communication is and also what it isn't by comparing it to science journalism. We do that by looking at science writing in general and how to do it well with the help of scientists, journalists, and writers who have made a career out of it. We end the first episode with the story of a virologist who stumbled into science communication, his words, and what he learned along the way. We recorded portions of this episode back in February and March before COVID-19 took hold in many parts of the world. I don't think there's a single path to becoming either a science journalist or a science communicator. And if you look at people who really thrive in the profession, you'll see a multiplicity of approaches. 
Deborah Bloom is an American science and health journalist and the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Bloom backed the Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles on the ethical and emotional conflicts between scientists experimenting on animals in their research. She also edited a field guide for science writers, an anthology of essays covering almost every aspect of the field. As a young journalist, she covered general assignment beats before turning to science writing, and later studying for a master's degree in environmental journalism. She says she grew up in a house of science, and she even tried her hand at science as a college student. My father was a research biologist, so I grew up when what I always think of as the house of science with, you know, a cluster of postdocs and grad students at dinner every weekend and all of the above. And I started out and was briefly a science major myself in college. I was a chemistry major until I realized that I was not really fit to be in a laboratory um, because I just didn't have the attention to detail mostly. And also because I set my hair on fire. That was a, a warning sign. Deborah left the lab behind, but the flaming torch of science, the figurative one, burned within her for years. Her books, The Poisoner's Handbook and The Poison Squad, both New York Times bestsellers, were about, perhaps unsurprisingly, two pioneers of forensic chemistry and a crusading chemist, respectively. When she talks about science writing, Deborah, or Deb to her colleagues and students, likes as a first order of business to stress that science communication and journalism are not the same thing, even if they do often overlap. So, what is the crucial difference? Journalism is independent inquiry, and science journalists seek to illuminate science. They're not necessarily trying to promote it. They're not necessarily even on the side of science, if that makes sense. They see science as a story that needs to be told, And so they stand a little distant in that kind of neutral observer uh, part of the platform, whereas science communicators in general are people that we think want to share the story of science because they love science. They're actually often scientists or part of the science community. They may be working for an institution like the National Science Foundation or a un in a university science communication post. And so they have a different agenda, and their agenda is not only to tell the story of science, but I think try to build support for it to, or for their specific institution. And that's a very strict divide. And I was just at a uh, conversation, it was like a town hall conversation, at the AAAS in Seattle on this very point in which one of the things that came up for debate was, you know, what if what is the dividing line in which you can actually call yourself a science journalist if you get, you know, 40% of your income from promoting science, can you still call yourself a science journalist? No one had a good answer to that, but I think it shows that there is you know, this sort of internal wrestling about it in the profession. How important is it to distinguish between both? One can argue that the end is the same. Aren't we all trying to bridge the gap between science as a tool in a discipline and the public? So I think we do need at some point to be very clear about what is a science journalist and what is a science communicator, just in terms of public trust and public understanding of this, these different forms of communication. 
One of the things that is very distinct about science journalism is the issue of conflict of interest. So for instance, if I want to write a story about uh, CRISPR gene editing, and I, and I personally am based at MIT, I don't, feel I don't feel that I can comfortably do that as a science journalist because I might have to write about scientists in that profession who are at MIT, right? That's an obvious conflict of interest. Whereas if I was a science communicator, that wouldn't be a conflict of interest. So one of the other things that we talk about sometimes is not only that sort of attitude of independent inquiry, but the way that science journalism per se, tries to be very clean about conflicts in a way that science communication, it's not as much of an issue. That's not to say it's infested with conflicts. But clearly, one of the things you can do as a science communicator is tell stories about scientists at your institution. But whether you want to step into the world of media to simplify science to the general public, to fascinate or shock, teach scientific thinking, or to write long-form features, or publish a book about your field, there is no single path to get you there. Bringing this idea home, another award-winning science journalist and publisher, Siri Carpenter, has compiled personal essays that, at their heart, showcase how science communication operates on many levels. Her book, The Craft of Science Writing, has stories like that of Azine Gryashi, a neurogeneticist who says she daydreamed about becoming a journalist while slicing through fruit fly brains the size of poppy seeds. Siri's book also includes an essay from Anare Patani who talks about recycling skills from reporting for use in science writing and whether or not you need a science degree to be a journalist. Siri herself was a psychology PhD at Yale University who came into the world of science writing and editing in the mid-1990s without training or formal guidance and practically learned on the job. Now, I would have Googled science writing, but there was no Google yet. <laughs> but I did search science writing on this um, kind of predecessor to Google called Alta Vista. And when I did that, I discovered that there is, in fact, a national association of science writers. And that was super valuable for two reasons. One was that it told me that, yes, science writer is a thing that exists. And two, it gave me access to some resources to begin researching what it would mean to be a science writer. And on the NISW website, this was about 1996 or 97, um, there was a list, if you can believe it, of science writers who have email. And it was a list of like, maybe there were 20 people or something. And so I emailed them all. And I asked questions. And they were super vague questions. I don't remember exactly where, what they were, but I think that they were probably questions like, what is science writing and how do I do it? Did that help? I think maybe the only person who wrote back, or at least one of the only people who wrote back, was someone named Charles Seif, who now is a um, really well-known science writer and author and professor at NYU. But Charles was a relatively recent um, graduate of Yale. I think he had been a, a mathematician and he was fairly new to science writing at the time. And he was kind enough to write me back a lengthy note that just kind of laid it all out for me. This is what science writing is. And here are some things you can do to get started. And so one of the things that I learned about from him 
was that there's this AAAS Mass Media Fellowship Program, which is, it still exists, it's still excellent, it's a really premier way to get into science writing and a great opportunity if you can get it. And it is designed for scientists and engineers who want to learn about science writing. So they may not already have any science writing uh, samples that they can use to try to get journalism internships. But um, the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship Program offers internships at, at the time, I think it was around 15 to 20 publications around the country. And so I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship through the AAAS program at the Richmond Times-Dispatch in Richmond, Virginia, which at the time had a really great, um, venerable science and health section. And that internship did open doors for Siri, both to newsrooms and years later, academia. While she may have not studied journalism, she now teaches it in addition to running The Open Notebook, an online guide to science writing based on the experience she has gained since her first writing role. My first job in science writing was at the APA Monitor on Psychology, the magazine of the American Psychological Association. And then I became a freelancer after a couple of years at that. It was another 10 years before my colleague and friend Jeannie Erdman and I co-founded The Open Notebook. I joke that it, it, it came about because of some combination of envy and imposter syndrome. Um, Jeannie and I were friends. We had gotten to be friends because we were volunteers together on the National Association of Science Writers Freelance Committee. We would have frequent conversations, kind of accountability conversations, and we'd talk about our work. And often we would find ourselves talking about stories that we had read and liked. And the kind of common theme in those conversations was... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I wonder how that writer did that. I wonder how she found that story idea. I wonder how she got access to this source who maybe seems like someone who would not want to be talking to a reporter. Um, I wonder how she wrote it so beautifully, et cetera. And um, we just had a lot of questions and felt like maybe if we could talk with some of these science writers who we admired and talk with them in a really focused way about a specific story so that we wouldn't be saying, how do you get your ideas? But we would be saying, how did you get the idea for this story? And that's literally what the open notebook became. The hub seeks to answer a lot of lingering questions and concerns, not just limited to writing, but also issues like diversity within science publishing or the absence thereof, inclusion and representation of LGBTQ people, or challenges faced by minorities and people of color. If you're looking for awards and fellowship opportunities, journalism tips for both scientists and non-scientists, or you simply don't know where to start, this is one resource you can check out. Science and journalism are similar in that they are both a search for some kind of a truth. Um, They're similar in that they're driven by curiosity and sometimes by the desire to right some wrong. They're similar in that they require careful information gathering, 
um, understanding and attention to your own biases. They require revision. Um, in the best cases, science is self-correcting, as they say. It's a process of becoming increasingly less wrong over time. In the same vein, journalism is a process of developing and communicating a progressively better and more complete understanding of the subjects you're covering. And then I would say that like any technical skill and any creative pursuit, it takes time and practice to get better at science writing. So there are any number of skills involved. Um, learning to recognize what makes a scientific development newsworthy or noteworthy to a general audience. Learning to put that idea into context and provide enough nuance to give it depth, but not so much that it overwhelms readers. Learning to interview sources and sometimes to find information that doesn't want to be found. Um, learning to explain complicated concepts and processes in a way that's engaging and accurate. Learning to structure stories so that readers will be hooked from the start and that they'll keep reading to the end. Learning to express ideas clearly. Um, learning to avoid jargon and cliches. Um, writing about controversial topics without falling prey to the, the tendency toward what we call false balance. Learning to fact check your own work properly. There are so many different skills that go into good science writing. And as I say, it takes time and practice to get better at that. But they're all important parts of being a science writer, whether you're a journalist or a science communicator in some other capacity or a scientist who's writing for the public or a scientist who's writing for other scientists or for your students or for a grant review committee. And no one is good at all of these things immediately. They take practice and they take feedback and they take learning from mistakes. There is a lot to unpack there, but here are some key words. Avoid jargon, the sin of all sins if you're talking to general audience. Write with clarity and know your audience. You're listening to Working Scientist, and today you're hearing from some of the biggest names in science communication and writing. Coming up next, Islam Hussain, a Boston-based virologist and drug researcher who says he became a science communicator by accident. Islam talks about how he set up a modest recording studio in his basement with the help of his 16-year-old son. Islam Hussain's life revolves around viruses. In fact, he can't stop talking about them to anyone who will listen. Islam first gained prominence in Egypt, his home country, and in some parts of the Arab world in 2014, following a series of informative YouTube videos. In those videos where Islam speaks in Arabic, his mother tongue, he exposed the false science behind the device that Egyptian military scientists had claimed can remotely detect and cure viral diseases, including hepatitis C and AIDS. Thanks to aggressive pushback from Islam and others, the Egyptian government finally decided not to endorse the pseudoscience. There was a, an outrageous claim by some people um, affiliated with uh, the government and um, some other higher authorities um, that they have invented uh, uh, devices for treating and diagnosing viral infections. And it was, uh, it was a big scandal. And um, of course, nothing was this. Nothing of this was true. It was a big fiasco. On the personal side, I felt like um, this is not good for the reputation of science, not reputation, and the reputation of Egyptian scientists in general. And uh, at that time, I wasn't really sure what to do. Um, I'm not a public figure, maybe until today. Um, but I wanted to do something. I have no connection to the media. And I ended up uh, recording a video and posting it on, on YouTube. And I thought that the people who are going to watch this are my friends and my family. But it ended up going uh, viral. 
and and I was shocked. I, I, I wasn't planning for this. It was a long video, but apparently um, I used language that was like in the in the in the right wavelength for the majority of people to understand um, in scientific terms why this was not uh, true. And then from this experience, I learned a lot. That was the trigger. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of interaction between me and the public. Uh, some, of, some of this interaction was good, other was not, in the form of insults and threats and all sorts of bad things. Uh, but I've learned a lot from this experience. And, and, and I wanted to, um, to, to take all these lessons and use them in something more uh, productive, more useful to the public. I felt like we have a gap that need that needs to be filled. Um, there, there are a lot of scientists everywhere, successful, doing great, but they don't have this interest in communication. And from what I've witnessed firsthand is that we need some of this, we need more of this in our lives. Islam never looked back. Forming a team with his son, Islam decided to make the videos more regular and more nuanced. He rigged up a mini-studio in his basement, and while he focused on research and content creation, he delegated the technical part to his son. Listeners know that a scientist can pretty much do a PowerPoint presentation, but beyond the PowerPoint, it's not, you know, you don't have a lot of experience in, in, in video making. So we started uh, building a studio in our basement, and it was uh, a lot of trial and error. Uh, well, we've never, I've never had any formal education or classes. It's all through uh, YouTube videos and other freely available courses on the internet. Uh, we started together, side by side, uh, learning how to produce a, a visual material, how to, you know, how how to adjust the audio, how to get a good lighting on the on the on the picture, how, and so on and so forth. All these, you know, technical things that you need to know in order to produce a video that people will be interested to watch. And it grew with time. Uh, we've learned a lot over the past five years. Um, and I get feedback from the, uh, the, the audience. Some of them are technical people who know more about audio than me. So I, I would get a, an advice from someone or a recommendation to try something new. And it, there it goes. Islam's videos are usually both heavily researched and well rehearsed. It takes a village too. Islam's wife, who is not a scientist, is usually his first one-person audience. He runs the videos by her to make sure the science is comprehensible. Then he runs it by peers for suggestions and input. I treat this as a scientific publication and I follow the, the peer review rules. <laughs> so I, I send it to some colleagues and, and, and ask for their feedback. And sometimes I produce a draft of the video itself after recording and also send it to, to a couple of my colleagues and ask for their feedback. Uh, so it's, it's quite intensive and, 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 and many people don't know what I do in the background. And, and maybe that's why I don't make a video every week because it just takes a lot of time. I, I, I try my best uh, when I say something, uh, it's clear um, and it's scientifically correct. That's my Priority number one, I don't want to mislead anyone. I don't want to convey any information that I'm not sure about. And I try my best to convey any uncertainty in our knowledge and try to tell people that, you know, science is an evolving process. We know some answers. We're still not sure about the others. And this is how it goes. Islam says that he also makes sure to inject some humor in there if he can and to keep it short and simple. I stick to the 10 to 15 minute uh, period for each video. 
and the preparation varies from one video to the other. But um, some of them, like I, I once created a video on CAR T cell therapy. Uh, this was a very complicated uh, concept. Uh, it has a lot of uh, immunology and virology and tumor biology, and it, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. It took me, in the preparation, it took me three months. I have read 72 papers in order to prepare this video. It took me three months of continuous reading and writing and editing until I felt comfortable to stand in front of the camera and record it. And, and you know, sometimes people criticize me for this and they say that the perfection is, is not always good for what you do. But you know what? I, I, I care more about quality and I care more about this is how we're trained as scientists. I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to give you the wrong information. I don't care. You know, I'm not, I don't want to be on camera because I like being on a camera. I, 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 when I hit record, I want to make sure that I, I say something useful and accurate. Ultimately, the biggest secret to being a good science communicator, besides rigorous research, is passion, he says. Since that first series of videos, he's appeared in several local TEDx events, and more recently on a primetime TV show in Egypt to talk about COVID-19. Islam is among many virologists who are particularly active right now in battling misinformation about the new coronavirus as well as COVID-19. He spends time on social media answering people's questions and addressing their concerns. Then again, if there is a time for big conversations on science by scientists, it's now. But more on that in the next episode of this Nature Careers podcast, where we discuss how, in the quest for truth, science communicators are trying to win the battle for the COVID-19 narrative against many odds and a flood of fake news. Thanks for listening. I'm Pakina Maimer. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.